Hello, and welcome to the Deep and Durable Learning Podcast. This is the show for anyone who wants to learn how to think. Your brain was designed to think deeply, but thinking often loses out in the battle for educational efficiency. Real thinking gets pushed to the margins and eventually abandoned in far too many cases. I know there are many, including some educators, who don't believe that thinking can be taught. My students in my nearly 45 years in higher education, however, regularly told me on course evaluations that I taught them how to think. I believe I can help you with my proven strategies. In the last two podcasts, I've emphasized our individual formation of the patterns that we call concepts. Concepts aren't the only patterns, however. Concepts are always linked to other concepts through an elaborate network of connections formed by recognizing even more patterns. The human brain has the ideal architecture to form detailed conceptual frameworks. Our brains have about 100 billion neurons, which is about the same as the number of stars estimated to be in the Milky Way. Each neuron, in turn, connects with other neurons through about 10,000 synapses. This means that the human brain has 10 to the 15th synaptic connections. That's a thousand trillion synapses. The extraordinary power of connection making led Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, to famously declare, quote, creativity is just connecting things. When you ask creative people how they did something, they feel a little guilty because they didn't really do it. They just saw something. End of quote. Join me today as we zero in on the kind of seeing that leads to transformative connection making. We're in that season of the year variously called autumn, fall, or pumpkin season. If you're into all things pumpkin, you might be interested in knowing that saving your jack-o'-lantern to make a pumpkin pie is sure to disappoint. Perhaps you noticed when you cleaned out the seeds on the interior of your pumpkin how stringy and fibrous the flesh is. That's not what you want in a pie. Pumpkin flesh is also watery with nary a hint of sweetness. But, you protest, I love pumpkin pie. And it has none of the flaws you describe. I agree. But the reason is that no one makes pies from jack-o'-lantern pumpkins. At least, not more than once. Baked pumpkin treats come almost exclusively from canned pumpkin. And Libby's, which makes over 80% of the canned pumpkin in the U.S., has their own proprietary cultivar of the Dickinson pumpkin, which is tan on the outside. There was a viral rumor on Facebook five to six years ago, and repeated often since then, that canned pumpkin was a 
blend of squashes and not pumpkin at all. Well, sorting through this will require both concepts and connections. The concept of a pumpkin is fraught because there's not universal agreement about how to define the category. Your pattern that envisions orange spheres is not binding. In fact, you've probably increasingly noticed pumpkin-like items, some even white, showing up alongside orange traditional pumpkins. Not all these pretenders can be written off as gourds. Pumpkins are classified in the botanical genus Cucurbita. This genus contains a variety of fruits. Yes, pumpkins are fruits, including cantaloupe, cucumbers, and squash. Cucurbita, which sounds suspiciously like cucumbers, Cucurbita moshata, being species, includes butternut squash, as well as the Dickinson pumpkin of canned pumpkin fame. Most botanists would put this kind of pumpkin in quotes, maintaining that only Cucurbita pipo, which includes standard field pumpkins, should be called pumpkins. Since 1957, the Food and Drug Administration has allowed squash with certain properties, to be canned and labeled as pumpkin. Dickinson pumpkin might really be a squash, and the FDA would be okay with the pumpkin label on the can. Did you notice the need to branch out from the concept of a pumpkin to try to resolve this? Properties such as color and firmness of the flesh, lack of stringiness, Sweetness, etc., need to be invoked. And these are all additional concepts. The pumpkin concept is not an encyclopedia entry containing everything there is to say about pumpkins. Our concepts recognize a minimal set of invariant attributes. We link them to other concepts to develop them in specific ways. When we link a concept with another concept, we specify the relationship between the two. Linked concepts form propositions. The linkage may indicate hierarchy. Fruit, for instance, is a higher-level concept. That is, it's more inclusive than squash or pumpkin. There are many kinds of fruit. Our mental linkage may be simple. Uh, That is, any plant that's sweet is a fruit. But that won't withstand scrutiny. Sugarcane and sugar beets both contain lots of sugar, yet both are vegetables. The core concept of a fruit is a plant that produces a ripened ovary that contains seeds. An apple would be a good example of a ripened ovary. Ovary, ripening, and seeds are all concepts that link with and serve to specify the concept of a fruit. All true fruits meet these criteria. These commonalities link avocados and apples, 
strawberries and squash to the concept of fruit, regardless of how egregiously this violates our common sense categories. Precision in thinking, in fact, mandates that we do not settle for common sense categories. We must be open to questions that challenge our existing categories. The stronger the linkage between concepts, the the more powerful the resulting proposition will be as a tool of thinking. And the most powerful propositions are those where the linkage involves causality. I call these propositions principles, and I'll set aside one of the remaining podcasts this season to explore them. I need to be clear that it is the process of forming and questioning propositions that makes them durable. We've been conditioned educationally to think of learning as collecting information for recall. Collecting propositions is not knowledge and does not require understanding. It is only through an intentional pursuit of patterns, both through concept formation and concept connection, that understanding is generated. The habit of mind that actively seeks connections often finds helpful analogies in unexpected places. The mind that says, this is in some sense like that, demonstrates its cognitive health by leaving no stone unturned. There are more stones to turn when we have explorer's mind as I've detailed in the early podcast this season. Steve Jobs emphasized both deep understanding and broad experience in the design process. Here he is in an interview in 1996. He said, quote, To design something really well, you have to get it. It takes a passionate commitment to really thoroughly understand something. Chew it up, not just quickly swallow it. Most people don't take the time to do that. End of quote. Parenthetically, the passion to pursue thorough understanding is the essence of deep learning. I think that's your commitment, and it's why you listen to this podcast. Steve Jobs continues his thought. Creativity is just connecting things. When you ask creative people how they did something, they feel a little guilty because they didn't really do it. They just saw something. It seemed obvious to them after a while. That's because they were able to connect experiences they've had and synthesize new things. And the reason they were able to do so was that they've had more experiences or they've thought more about their experiences than other people. Unfortunately, that's too rare a commodity. End of quote. Broad experience and being thoughtful about those experiences are key to creativity in any kind of problem solving. Analogies import understanding from one area and bring it to bear on a very different area. Let's take something called the central dogma of molecular biology 
which lays out the functional relationship between DNA and protein. Most people know that DNA is code. It is the code that specifies the physical attributes of any living system. With that starting point, consider another type of code, an architect's plans, which specify the structural attributes of a house. If we were to copy the architect's plans verbatim, that would be what cells do with their code in preparation for cell division, so that each of the two offspring cells have their own copy of the entire code. How do cells produce full copies of their codes? Through a process called replication. Replication, as the word is generally used, refers to making a full and exact copy of something. If we go to the building site where the house designed by the architect is going to be erected, we find various subcontractors executing parts of the overall plan. They need only part of the plan, and we call these parts blueprints. There's a blueprint for the site grading, another for the foundation, separate blueprints for plumbing or electrical, etc. Now the cell does this as well. It produces a copy of a gene or two at a time. But these copies are not DNA. Rather, they're a related molecule called RNA, uh, specifically messenger RNA, that lasts only long enough for the code to be used. The process of limited copying is called transcription. Transcription in general use, for instance, in a courtroom, is an account of what was admissible into evidence, usually in the form of text. The cell has machinery that builds a protein from what the messenger RNA specified. This process is called translation because proteins are constructed from different building blocks than RNA or DNA. We use the term translation when we move the message from one language to another. In the building analogy, the blueprints are turned into the specified physical structure consisting of concrete, wood, metal, etc. And it's here that the code is turned into a functional reality. So, the order in the central dogma of molecular biology is DNA to RNA to protein. And the processes in order of their execution are replication, transcription, and translation. Students are tempted to memorize these basics instead of taking the time to create the robust network of linked concepts that should be the foundation of their understanding. Memorization of propositions like these leaves them without the knowledge foundation necessary to really understand molecular biology. Metaphor and simile are commonly used to illuminate a narrative or an argument in a compact fashion. You probably recognize that parables, often defined as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, are the type of analogy used regularly by Jesus. The relationship between concepts 
through linkage with other concepts, has been likened by Joseph Novak, the father of concept mapping, to the relationship between individual atoms linked to other atoms in a molecule. The propositional linkages would then correspond to chemical bonds. That's an analogy. Propositions are built one linkage at a time as the individual explores concepts with plausible relationships. Some of these related concepts can be suggested as logical inferences and then validated or invalidated using deductive logic. These would take the form of if P, then Q, where P is a hypothetical contention and Q is the conclusion. In our earlier pumpkin example, this would look like if standard field pumpkin flesh, aka jack-o'-lantern pumpkin flesh, is the ingredient used in pumpkin pie, then you can harvest this flesh and use it to make a tasty pumpkin pie. If you ever try this, and I have, you'll find it's not true. The resulting pie suffers from many defects, among which is that it's insipid. Inferences are tools of creative exploration of your conceptual space. They are the means through which you find a home for your concepts. I call this process negotiation. Negotiation inherently involves give and take. In conceptual negotiation, I explore whether a relationship exists between two concepts, and if so, what the nature of that relationship is. There are many types of relationships within propositions, so this is decidedly nonlinear, and there's no helpful checklist to exhaust. It is the, quote, creative scrabbling, or the, quote, imaginative casting about, end quote, that epistemologist Esther Meek characterized as the invariable prelude to an aha moment. Scrabbling involves looking for clues. Clues may be pointers, but clues may also be red herrings. Clues are often small things that may be nothing, but then again, they may enable the moment of insight. They may be decisive in cracking the case. One thing is certain, the more clues you collect and evaluate, the more likely you are to see the relationships that form powerful propositions. This is what Steve Jobs meant when he fingered creativity as due to having more experiences. But Jobs also said that creativity involves thorough understanding of an idea, and that takes time. Surely, thorough understanding is not less than securing the logical home for an idea by constructing its crucial connections. One helpful arena for clues is visualization. The human brain is heavily invested in visualization, and this includes the ability to generate visual models as hypotheticals. The German organic chemist August Kekulé claimed he visualized the ring structure of benzene after dreaming of a snake eating its tail back in 1865. 
Ring structures at that time were a conceptual breakthrough for organic chemistry, and many of them have been discovered to be reality, including benzene. I taught molecular biology for decades, and I encouraged my students to study the accurately crafted figures in the text to probe their own understanding. These detailed figures and the animations which followed over the years proved invaluable to students in exploring logical, causative relationships within cellular machines. Students were not accustomed to analyzing illustrations, but tended to view them as a way to spice up the verbal flow of the text or a means of reducing the number of sentences necessary to develop an idea. To emphasize the power of visualization, my teaching methodology consisted of using detailed illustrations as slides and asking students questions in class that required them to make inferences from the drawings or animations. Reasoning from well-crafted illustrations opened their minds. To use a common parallel, think of an item that you've purchased that euphemistically says, some assembly required. Perhaps this was a piece of Ikea furniture, like a desk. I know some people freeze when they see the instructions, and some even hire someone else to assemble it. Imagine what it would be like, however, if there were no diagrams, only text and numbered packages of pieces and fasteners. The job of assembly would be exponentially more difficult without a visual aid. Life itself is the ultimate cognitive aid. Physical items occur in a context. Their physicality means that they're three-dimensional, and they present all sorts of sensory information to process in proscribing the concept and linking it to your existing concepts. You're embedded in opportunities to forge connections that lead to insight. A transcript of today's podcast and additional links to sources are available at deepanddurable.com. This is podcast number 26, and there are also 26 blog posts that develop the ideas further and link you to additional sources. Please avail yourself of these resources at deepanddurable.com. This podcast season is rapidly drawing to a close. I'm on a quest to help you develop your thinking so you can be all God made you to be. Facility in thinking comes not from the accumulation of minutiae, through the formation of powerful inductive conclusions formulated through repeated encounters with the clues that surround us. Join me in two weeks as we further explore the use of clues to operationalize inductive integration. Learn how to create big ideas that can change your life.